Welcome back to Decouple. Today I'm joined by a returning guest, fan favorite, and a great personal friend of mine, Robert Bryce. Um, I am freshly back from COP in Dubai, still struggling a little bit in the afternoons with the jet lag. So luckily this recording is occurring at 11.24 a.m. my time. Um, I had quite a time at COP and uh, Robert, you were not there, but um, you just put out a fabulous article on your Substack called COP28 Gets Coal in Its Stocking. Um, that really caught my attention. I wanted to have you on to try and debrief and get, I guess, a kind of broader sense of where these climate negotiations, the context in which they're occurring energetically. Sure. Some beautiful data sure. visualizations there. We're going to we're gonna turn those visuals into, into some verbal content for our fabulous listeners. So, Robert, warm welcome back. Thank you. Very uh, always pleased to be with you, Chris. How, just, how have you been? How, how's the last few days been for you, last weeks? What are you up to? Uh, it's all good. You know, I've been traveling a lot, uh, been, uh, managing some family things, but, uh, you know, I have no complaints. I, I live a charmed life. Um, and, uh, you know, my, this, this energy and, and power, this is my purpose and my passion. And, uh, uh, you know, I just wake up every day and consider myself incredibly lucky. So, um, yeah, everything is good. The family is awesome. good. So awesome. all good family first. Um, listen, so I was, uh, as I said, on the grounding cop, um, the grounds itself 70,000 people. What was that like? I mean, what was it? it? Was, I mean, last year was 35,000 this year, 70. I mean, it's like Woodstock for climate people. What, I mean, how do you, I mean, descri- it, how do you describe I've, I've called, this? I've called uh, these climate conferences, uh, climate Versailles in the past. Um, this one I think was climate burning man, the actual, uh, sites, <laughs> uh, it's, it's the expo site in, uh, in Dubai. I mean, it is trippy. Uh-huh. There is some incredible architecture, this beautiful, dome oh, yeah. with sort of arabic motifs in it that just 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 incredible size and soundscape and and visuals and um yeah no i mean it's it's up there with some of the best raves i've been to um no but in all in all seriousness um it was hard to get your head around it's so vast and the physicality of the space was so vast it was you know las vegas 10x in terms of the city of dubai in terms of how big right. everything is how far apart everything is but the expo grounds were a nightmare just because you try and get from one venue to the other and it was like a 30 minute walk in, in some pretty, well, high temperatures for this Canuck over here. Um, what, what did it look like to you from, from the outside, a continent away? Well, first, I mean, I've only been to Dubai once and the architecture there is something else. I mean, it's just as, uh, you know, I, I described it as though the building goes up this way and then it turns right and then it turns left and then it goes right again. And I mean, you know, the architecture is quite amazing. Um, but as far as the, uh, you know, the cop, the cop, uh, experience, the cop, the, the, the motif or these, these events, you know, I, I think they, after watching them now for more than a decade, it's always kind of the same script that, Oh, we're going to go in there and this is going to be the one. And we're going to make these big pledges. And then, at, you know, it goes on for all these, there's a ton of media coverage because the reporters love to go to these meetings. They have lots of coverage from all the big media outlets and, Oh, this one's going to be different. And Oh, there's this controversy and then nothing happens, nothing. Oh, and right at the end, Oh, we don't have an agreement. And then oh, we got to have an agreement. And then right at the ninth hour, there is an agreement. And so in, you know, looking back at this, this one and the, the stock take, right. That is yeah. what their term of art is for the final document. And it has this tripling renewable capacity, which can't happen. It won't happen because it can happen. And in uh, this agreement, tra- transition away from hydrocarbons. Okay, well, yeah, easy to say. But remember, China, India, and Indonesia did not sign the document. So, okay, well, you know, congratulations. But here you have the two, uh, two of the or three of the fastest growing economies in the world 
three of the, the economies that are adding coal-fired capacity at the fastest rate of any countries in the world. And so I don't know. I mean, I hate to say I'm cynical about it. It's just I'm kind of, you know, resigned to this um, this uh, repetition of media frenzy. I, yeah. I guess that's what I'd, what I'd call it, because I think it's mostly about media posturing, because you know, for all of this talk, what happens? Coal consumption continues to rise. It, it, IEA just came out with a new coal report saying this year consumption is going to be 8.5 billion tons. In July, they thought it was going to be 8.4 billion. I could go into coal. We know, will. Cap- we will, Robert. Let, let, me, uh, let me riff a little bit off of some of the things sure. you said. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think as, as you're mentioning here, uh, it seems like there is just an incredible amount of uh, diplomatic capital spent on just these little sort of turns of phrase, whether it's a phase yeah. out, a phase down, whether it's calling on or demanding. Yeah. Um, this kind of language just seems pretty silly to me, given- Just just transition. Don't forget just that. Just transition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just uh, how, you know, I've been posting about this recently, uh, but just how wedded we are um, to, to fossil fuels um, and these fantasies about deployments of alternative energy sources. I mean, the only reason that they're economic with big quotation marks is because of the surplus value we get from fossil fuels, which give us this, this extra wealth that we can, you know, pour into subsidies or, or, uh, you know, firming intermittents and things like that. But I'm not going to go on too long of a diatribe there. You know, a couple of things that, that I was sort of questioning, I'm always looking for the realpolitik, you know, I mean, whether that's justifications for war, you know, there's always a grand narrative and there's, there's something more sort of sometimes cynical or just a real politique behind things. So, I mean, like, why do you host a climate conference? Is it like hosting the Olympics, um, build some infrastructure, go into debt? Um, you know, this is obviously a place where a lot of wheeling and dealing is happening and a lot of sort of diplomatic uh, meetings can occur outside of the actual stated goals of the conference. So I think that's kind of the conclusion that I came to. Um, interesting you mentioning that, uh, you know, the BRICS countries essentially, or most of them didn't sign on. Um, you know, you, the one thing you didn't mention, and, and it's sort of giving uh, the nuclear community a lot of joy is, is this commitment to a, a tripling of nuclear. But again, yeah. the geopolitics, interesting, Russia, India, China, they are building 46 of the 60 reactors currently under construction around the world. They're the only credible deployers outside of maybe South Korea and the UAE and a, and a handful of others. Um, but the Western nations that signed on, frankly, are, are fumbling. And, uh, you know, I have great concerns about nuclear. And may, maybe we'll talk about that a bit later. Uh, but just wanted to throw in a, a few sort of uh, my own two cents, uh, again, sort of combining your outside look and, and my inside look and, and thoughts on this, uh, on this conference. So 70,000, that, I mean, that's just a big, I, 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 I'm just kind of curious, and I don't know whether you know the answer or you speculate on it, but how is it that the 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 number of attendees would double in one year? What what makes Dubai different from what was Sharm El Sheikh last year? And is that still partly the hangover from COVID, or is there? I mean, what I don't understand why the pop, you know, why the attendee list would or the number of attendees would would increase so dramatically one year to the next. I think it's just a great opportunity to do some wheeling and dealing, and you know, for a variety of different industries to meet up and make deals and hash plans. Um, so that's a big part of it. I mean, Dubai, the infrastructure is pretty incredible. Um, you know, yeah. they're a real tur- bastion of tourism. They could host people. Um, you know, they have an incredible sort of efficiency. Things were organized ex- extremely well. Um, certainly, you know, the Net Zero Nuclear Summit that I attended, I can't speak highly enough about uh, you know, ENEC and, and the others that put it on on the Emirati side. Incredibly efficient. Um, you know, sessions basically on time, on budget kind of thing. Just just like their nuclear plant. Um 
but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's part of the reason. But certainly, yeah, a lot a lot of deals are going on. Um, there's a lot of stuff under that veneer of of the climate politics, right? Um, and so the 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 net zero nuclear part of that, what what was that like? Because I thought that that was interesting, and I think you know of all the things that happened, this tripling nuclear pledge. Now we can say this is a stretch goal, but by 2050, you know, maybe it could happen. There are a lot of challenges. I've written about this, what's regulation, capital and fuel, right? It's always the same things, right? But just yesterday we had Cairo, the NRC, or well, I guess it was earlier this week, Cairo's power announced they got a, a, an approval from the NRC for a construction permit for a gas cooled reactor. Now that is a big deal, right? You know, because I don't think it cost them $500 million in six years, like it did with New Scale. And this is a new type of reactor. So that I thought was really good news. And so, you know, there, we've seen many steps back, but I also see a few steps forward here that give me some, some hope that, yeah, maybe this time it is in fact different. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, that, that announcement to triple nuclear energy was a hard fought battle, um, you know, by the hosts and the organizers and the World Nuclear Association. And again, ENEC hats off to those folks. They did some amazing um, work in terms of the the diplomacy to make that happen. Um, it is, uh, you know, an enormous kind of wind in the sails. I think what I'm saying is the easy part is kind of done. We have, uh, you know, the social license, the policy, the political license um, to get going on nuclear. Um, there are certain countries. Um, I would say that they have in common a dirigisme, um, you know, which is basically that there's some degree of state involvement in planning uh, and industrial planning of a highly strategic sector. Those would be your Russia's, China, South Korea's, Japan and its heyday, UAE right now that, you know, can deploy nuclear quickly, effectively, efficiently. Uh, But, you know, the countries that signed on largely, um, you know, there is one reactor under construction in the U.S. There are four in Europe. There's three in South America. You know, this is uh, a little bit piddling. Um, The U.S. obviously has a lot of, uh, you know, diplomatic prominence and they, you know, are behind the major deployed reactors around the world in terms of the BWR and PWR technology. And I think there's a lot of, um, you know, what the U.S. is falling back on um, because of its utter failure at, at deployment is, well, we're, we have the best reactor technology in the world. And I think there's a little bit of uh, you got to learn to crawl before you can uh, do backflips and gymnastic tumbling routines. And, um, you know, one of the big themes I, I moderated a panel on uh, fueling the race or fueling this effort to triple nuclear energy and in doing the research for it, um, discovered that the significant um, uprate of uh, Centris' uh, Halo, Centri- uh, Halo Cascade will produce only 900 kilos a year. That is enough to fuel a single Evinci micro reactor, a five megawatt electric micro reactor. So it just gives you a sense. Nine of the ten reactors in the advanced uh, in the DOE's uh, advanced uh, reactor demonstration program are Halo dependent. So major, major challenges. I, I said, um, you know, I didn't want to use the F word in polite company, but failure is absolutely, uh, it shouldn't be an option given the stakes, but it is, it's a, absolutely an option. And, and this is not a moment for hubris or arrogance. This is a moment, particularly in the West, to be paying careful attention, you know, to again, the host country, how they did it. Um, and I just, I worry about the political and industry architecture and whether the West is capable of sort of pulling that together um, to in any way imitate the successful deployments we've seen in the past. Even in the U.S., we'll say, okay, well, maybe it wasn't sort of state-driven, but these large utilities are kind of like states in and of themselves. That rate base is kind yeah. of analogous to a tax base, that ability to offer cheap financing based upon you know de-risking with the rate base. I, I don't see a way around that in terms of the, the free market um, 
I, know, I don't, I don't this. either, Chris. I, I, you know, I just, I, the, you mentioned the countries where we're seeing strong nuclear development and there are countries where you have strong state involvement and, uh, you know, China, obviously, South Korea, obvious, or, or, or uh, South Korea, yes, obviously, India, obviously. Um, and I mentioned the fact that Kairos Power got this uh, uh, construction permit from the NRC, which is great news to start construction on a gas-cooled reactor. Well, that happened the same week that in Shandong province, Huawang Group in China announced that they have actually started begun commercial operation of a gas-cooled reactor. So, and that took them, that project started in 2012. That was an 11 year project. They had, pro, they had problems getting that thing going, right? But it wasn't 14 years like Vogel. It wasn't 18 years like Akaludo 3. So, you know, this is going to take sustained bipartisan long-term commitment from states, from the federal governments to make this happen. And you know, I, I I see the stirrings of this in Washington, and I think there's a possibility of that happening. And it, you know, it's slowly gaining momentum. But w- let's be clear: we are miles behind, miles behind China and Russia and India when it comes to this. And you mentioned those three, and I'm just looking at the IAEA's list and the, of under construction. Um, and it doesn't. It's what does it say here? It says Russia has. Uh, what is it? three reactors under construction, China 22, no, China 22 and India eight. So that's 30, 30. But don't yeah, don't forget right. those yeah. Russian builds in Bangladesh and Egypt and Turkey. There's, they have a number uh, going overseas. So that gets, oh, your Russian okay. The, I see how you're getting teams. there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, right. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Okay. Right. These are just, they're measuring each country. So yeah. Okay. So you're counting R- Ross Adam, Ross Adam activity in all Absolutely. these other countries as Absolutely. well. Yeah. Right, but this is a state champion, right? This is the this is a state-owned entity that's doing this, right? And they're getting state financing to do this, and these are long-term, decadal relationships that they're building. So, and, and it's, it's based not that around the, fuel. It's not that the resources aren't there. I mean, Jigger Shaw and the LPO are sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, two hundred plus billion dollars, and you know, but it's it's private sector-led, public-enabled, which is a very bizarre form of you know free market capitalism, if you ask me. And so, yeah, it just seems to me like there's... Well, and let's be clear, so much of that is going to be reserved for the favored, you know, technologies of solar, wind, hydrogen, right? Solar, wind, hydrogen batteries. I mean, look, I get this. I'm following Jiggershaw. I've debated Jiggershaw. This is like, you know, come on. What are they going to put their money in, really? And and also, I think the utilities are going to be pretty gun-shy on, on new nuclear, given what we've seen in terms of the record of deployment. Look at New Scale. They, you know, they had to fold their tent on the the project in at Idaho National Lab. It was a big blow to domestic nuclear. X Energy is not going to go public now. They, you know, they that their deal with uh, Aries Capital Management that fell apart. So, you know, it, I'm adamantly optimistic, but this it's this connection of private capital and public support is is a difficult one and it's more difficult in the US because of these ideas around free markets and electricity. Well, it's not a freaking market. It's not, it's not a commodity. It's a service. And we, it it requires a change in mindset. Here's like a broad theme of something I've been thinking about, and I'd be interested in your your thoughts, but you know, free markets, um, I think are very good at innovation. That's, that's pretty undeniable. Um, central, centrally planned economies in the most extreme forms, things like China and Russia under communism, really good at banging out the same product forever in enormous quantities you know there's not market signals to say hey slow down on that or hey could you improve that a little bit so the famous example is a german uh motorbike uh, motorcycle that the soviets liked 
Uh, it was about a 1943 or 1944 vintage. They set up a you know production line for that, and they built that same goddamn motorbike with the same components for the next 50 years or so until the Soviet Union collapsed, right? And yeah, sure, they could bang out a big numbers, but there wasn't innovation. Now, people will say this, and maybe it's controversial, but innovation is uh, a tricky thing in nuclear. Um, it maybe even hurts nuclear to do a little too, too much innovation too fast. It's the hardest of hardwares. It, it, there's a real inertia and a slowness to this. So maybe part of the reason why Russia and China and maybe South Korea as well are, are dancing around us uh, is because central planning favors that sort of uh, economic activity, that sort of just banging something out over and over and over again, which seems to be the recipe for, for fast deployments um, of nuclear. So I'm, I'm not sure if uh, well, you've that, got well, that's any what we saw in France. That. That's what the, that's what we saw in France, right? You know, they picked one design and then they built a, a ton of them, right? And so you have their engineers can go from one plant to the other. It's a, you know that doesn't you know it was interesting it was many years ago now maybe ten or twelve, but it was only in Paris where I learned from a guy who's a French uh, academic and a guy who studied the nuclear sector at Three Mile Island in the U.S. There were two different uh, control systems for the two different reactors at Three Mile Island. It was like, he was looking at it and he was like, are you Americans are crazy. What are you doing? Right. You know, so this, I, I, I agree that the, the challenge is going to be regulatory state slash state support. Right. But also settling on a design that we're going to say, this is the one, it might not be the best one and it might not be the most thermally efficient or whatever, but this is the one we're going to pick. And I think that, you know, it's interesting to see how the, you know, well, you're seeing this in Ontario, right? You've got Bruce Power. You're going to go ahead with the can-do. And you're also, what is the other design you're picking, which is the BWRX 300, which apparently is what Duke is going to build as well in the Carolinas. And what are they going to use? It's not HALU, it's LEU, right? So they're going to use the conventional fuel supply network, supply chain that has been in place for decades. So that's one part of the risk uh, envelope, one part of the risk assessments or risk issues, right, that they're having to deal with in supply chain. Well, we'll take that one off the table because we know that the LEU supply chain is is, is mature and we can count on that. So, but I, I agree. I mean, I think these challenges are going to have to be very clearly addressed and they're going to have to be addressed on a kind of an international basis. If we're going to see this, anything like the tripling that is the goal that was was mentioned, which is heartening. There's now 25 countries now have have, have signed on. It was 22 originally They've added three since then. So I think that's very positive news. But again, we have to be very sober and very clear-eyed about this. I, I totally agree. And, and you know, just getting back to that contrast between central and central planning free market and the, the benefit of yeah. banging out the same thing over and over again versus innovation. I guess China has got that benefit of, uh, I don't know how to put it uh, diplomatically, uh, borrowing, stealing IP from the West. And so you know, I don't know. I don't know the exact story of the acquisition of the high temperature gas reactor IP that they're using um, to bring online. Uh, you know, first commercially operating, uh, you know, reactor of that uh, of that category. Um, I got to double check that because I know the Germans were running it, the South Africans were running it. I'm not sure if that was commercial. I'm sure I'll get some uh, some feedback and learn some more about that. But in any case, parking that theme. You know, another thing, as you mentioned, the X300 and and uh, you know picking a design and moving serially with it, it really does seem like that, that reactor is, is got that first mover, um, advantage, yeah. a credible deployer, uh, in, at OPG. And there's a lot of interest, uh, Ernie Moniz, uh, and several of the, uh, NGOs he's involved with EFI nuclear threat initiative and, uh, clean air task force. Uh, they put out this nuclear playbook uh, that came out while we we're at cop and it was, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Robert, because it was interesting. It's coming out of a you know an American ecosystem on nuclear, and it's saying to embarking countries, 
uh, countries interested in taking up nuclear, be technologically conservative. Use low enriched uranium, use something like a pressurized water reactor once through fuel cycle, make sure it's proven, it's got operational experience. I mean, this is all just incredibly common sense. Uh, and what I pointed right. out in my conversation with Ernie was, well, you know, they're established and embarking nations, but in that established category, there are nations that are re-embarking, right? They're, they're not quite in the same position as a country that's like Poland that's new to nuclear, but they're not much further ahead in terms of the atrophy that's gone on there. And may, you know, right. maybe you should follow your own advice. Which France comes to mind, right? The EPR, right? You know, the, 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 they look at all the trouble they had at Ocaluto. Now, maybe that's different. Um, uh, and you know, maybe they learned there and that that's going to be the way they go forward. I, you know, I, I really, uh, so in this next, as we, as we look forward at what is going to be deployed, I really, one of the most interesting geopolitical, you know, technology deployment questions is well, which country in Europe is going to be the one that can deploy the fastest, right? And who has the most motivation? And, you know, I ask this question a lot because I think it's just really interesting on a whole lot of levels. So is it Poland, right? Poland has a lot of, a lot of reason to, you know, accelerate deployment of nuclear. So does Romania, but France, um, uh, uh, Bill Magwood said, well, I'd put my money on France. They have the, in they have the infrastructure, the personnel, they have the engineering history, you know, so which will it be? I don't, I don't know, but it's, you know, the fact that at least now they're mouthing the right words, I take that as very positive. So what, you know, what, but when you come back from cop now, I mean, you were there, I wasn't. So did it make you more hopeful? Did it make you less or just kind of more sober? You, you know, you talk to all these people, you, you know, hob hobnobbing with the big wigs. Um, and in the case of Ernie Moniz, some bad haircuts, but I'm <laughs> digress. What would you, how do, what do you had time to kind of decompress? How do you see it? Well, I mean, I had, uh, three distinct experiences. Um, one was at the expo grounds themselves, which again, it was a bit dystopian for me as a pale white guy who sweats, uh, in any temperature above about 15 degrees C. Um, so that kind of clouded <laughs> that experience. Um, but you know, I, I did meet some, uh, you wouldn't last in Texas, my friend, oh you would not God. last in oh Austin. No, but you know, I, I, again, still pretty cynical of that side of things. Interesting. Some, you know, you'll, you'll walk into, uh, you know, premiers or prime ministers, or, you know, there's this, uh, kid from Australia, William Shackle, uh, you know, just a phenomenon of advocacy down there who managed to snag a impromptu interview with, uh, uh, Macron, Emmanuel Macron kind of walking with his microphone alongside and, and Emmanuel offered up, uh, Un, unscripted or, uh, you know, un, uh, unprovoked the wrong word, but he offered up, uh, you know, this statement that Australia should overturn its ban. It got front page news. So you have those kind of opportunities um, in the green and blue zones uh, of the official cop ground. So that was experience number one. Experience number two was the Net Zero Nuclear Summit put on by um, ENEC and, and the World Nuclear Association. Um, that was absolutely fascinating. And sort of watch, again, from an outsider perspective as an anthropologist, it was mostly... Um, folks from the U.S. that were speaking on stage. Uh, the Emiratis were in the audience, uh, you know, listening. And I'm actually trying to think if there was a session. No, there were a couple sessions where, where they were on stage and offering some of their expertise. But I kind of felt like it should have been the opposite with, you know, the folks from the West who are struggling, whose nuclear sectors are really in major danger. Um, they should have been sitting in the audience and, uh, you know, humbly uh, asking for lessons from the Emiratis. And, you know, that is, I think, occurring behind the scenes. Um, you know, the reactors at Baraka are now, um, basically finished. There's just some, uh, hot functional testing, I believe for the fourth one, it'll come on next year. Um, 
you know, they're, they're looking at new nuclear, they're looking at both SMRs and, and large nuclear. They, um, you know, during cold winters, when they don't have an aircon load, those BRCA nuclear plants is providing sometimes up to about 80% of their entire electricity needs. Um, obviously, they peak in the summer and they got a lot of aircon to do, but there's also 12 gigawatts of uh, oil and gas infrastructure that's not grid connected. So that's an opportunity for more big nuclear for them. Um, but I think, again, a big um, sort of, it's not a commodity, it's human resources, but a, but a huge sort of play they have is to consult with Western countries and provide lessons. Um, you know, if those lessons are applicable, again, to the sort of political and economic structures in the West is yet to be seen, but uh, certainly saw a lot of MOUs signed between ENEC and uh, a number of, of uh, Western companies there. Right. That's number two. Sign, ter- terrestrial Terrestrial, sign, right? yeah. Um, yeah, Moltex, a whole number of them. Um, and then, sorry, so that was the second thing. And then the third one um, was the experience of going with the decouple crew, um, getting red zone access to the Baraka nuclear plant and filming there and really getting to spend, you know, a good 12 hours um, with uh, a number of people from the plant, a senior reactor operator, Marwa. Shame to say, I can't remember her last name right now, but we had just a wonderful tour um, and we'll be releasing a great video on that experience. So overall, I went in deeply cynical and sort of, what, what am I doing here? Um, and I came out super energized. Um, you know, I don't think we're going to solve climate change um, with with nuclear. I, I think likely, well, let me just be honest, this tripling is not going to happen, but good to set some aspirations and goals. And, uh, you know, but I do feel like I have an important role to play, particularly here in Canada with, uh, you know, doing our damnedest. Uh, so I came out kind of energized uh, with the intention to, to do that. So, you know, my, my ambitions are a little less grandiose, probably a little more realistic. But um, like I said, overall, it was uh, it was a good experience. Glad I went. Yeah, well, that's great. And, and you know, you don't know until you get there. And, you know, my colleague Tyson Culver went and we screened, he screened uh, some of the episodes of our upcoming docuseries and he's, he thought it was a great experience. And uh, now he went to the cop last year at Sharm El Sheikh as well and, and did some participated in some, you know, nuclear things there. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm very much with you in terms of the need for a very sober, clear eyed approach because global energy demand continues to rise and rise very quickly. You know, electricity demand is, uh, doubling every two decades. And so this is, it's an enormous, an enormous challenge just to meet con- incoming, de- uh, the growing demand for power, regardless of the source. And it's m- even more difficult when you say, well, we want it to be low carbon and, you know, zero emissions or whatever. I mean, you know, that makes the, the challenge even, even more uh, difficult to e- kind of even conceptualize, much less achieve. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is a great sort of tie in and, and lead into what we actually came here to really talk about, Robert. Um, great to have a chit chat and, and a chance to sort of vent a little bit and, and uh, digest the cop experience. Uh, but I really wanted to chat with you about this uh, this piece you put out. Um, cop twenty eight gets coal in its stocking. I, I thought, you know, if I had written it, I might have called it sort of an. We tried to work in an inconvenient truth into the title, but you know, I thought it was a great title, very seasonal, um, and uh, put things in perspective. You know, you have these great data visualizations, and there's always a challenge to turn that into you know, getting a sense of the scale, the relative scale of what is happening in the world, additions of nuclear versus additions of coal. Um, John Kerry was there saying no new permitting um, should be allowed for uh, for new coal plants. Uh, you know, right. the U.S. is still burning quite a bit of coal. Maybe you can tell us how much. Seemed like a bit of green colonialism to me, but that's my lead in. You take it away on on the coal front here. Sure. Well, I've been following the coal market now for, you know, now, what, 14 years, right? And I've been in coal, underground coal mines. I've been in above ground coal mines. And, 
I look at coal uh, through this lens of, well, this is a fuel that some we just can't do without. And when I say we, I mean the global we, right? That regardless of all the downsides that are obvious, right? High CO2 emissions, uh, uh, air pollute, uh, high CO2 emissions, air pollutants, uh, sulfur dioxide, uh, ash ponds, all these other things we very clearly know about. But still today, globally, we're 35% of all the power produced in the world is still produced from coal. Now, 141 uh, years after Edison used it on Pearl Street. So what is it about this? And where is that market going? And there are a bunch of NGOs that I follow that track their work, and they try and downplay the growth in coal. Well, okay, you can downplay it, but I, I dug into the data that it was published by Global Energy Monitor, which I follow closely, and I think their work is really pretty pretty good. But you know their whole their whole spin, and it is spin that they put on their numbers is oh well the amount of new coal outside of China is declining. Okay, well, okay. Let's talk about China, China for a second. Then. Yeah, yeah, well, that's just a little bit of a kind of a head fake. Why? Because uh, in their own data, the amount of operating capacity for coal in China is one million megawatts. In the United States, it's 200,000. We have 200,000 megawatts of installed capacity. China today has 5x the installed coal-fired capacity as the U.S. India has slightly more. But the thing that was really inter interesting to me and important to tease out from Global Energy Monitor's own spreadsheets was this issue of how much is being proposed and how much is actually under construction. So, and I, I, I you know, I realize <laughs> it's funny, you know, I, I don't have an editor. I'm, I'm on Substack, so I have to make sure I'm what I'm writing. I'm, I'm thinking about it, make sure right. I'm right, right? And so I run it through Grammarly three, four, five, six, eight times. And I, I publish usually on my piece at four in the morning, 4.05, like Doomberg. He publishes at four. I publish usually at 4.05. I woke up at 2.30 realizing, oh, crap, I misapprehended one part of the spread. I got up at 2.30 in the morning because I wanted to go back and make sure I, I had to correct it. Okay, well, so what's the punchline? Today in China, there are 204,000 megawatts of uh, new capacity under construction, and two-thirds of that is in China. So 130 so that, that again, megawatts. You know, uh, for those uh, who struggle a little bit with uh, numbers and energy literacy, that's 200 gigawatt scale coal plants. That's right. Yeah. Uh, under 200 gigawatts. So it's, yeah. it's an entire addition of the U.S. entire coal fleet is now under construction globally. And of that number roughly two, uh, 130,000 megawatts is what is under construction in China. So yes, China is building a lot of coal, but so is Indonesia. So is, in, so is India. And those are the three countries, China, India, and Indonesia, and I think there was a fourth, that did not sign the final agreement at the, at the COP28 meeting. I see that, yeah. So, you know, the, it, it, again, I'm not sitting here cheering for coal. What I am doing is being a reporter and looking at the numbers and saying, okay, we can talk about all this and bully for the announcements. And I understand what the ideas are, but we, again, it, this requires real sobriety. And I, I, so that was one of the, the graphics that I published in my Substack. I looked at the top 12 coal countries with their operating capacity, coal-fired capacity, and their planned expansions in megawatts. And China, yes, they have over a million, I think it's actually about 1.1 million megawatts of installed capacity. They have another uh, 300,000 or so that, uh, that is in that is in the queue that is either announced pre-permitted or permitted. So remember last year they they permitted two new coal plants per week last year. So this idea that we're going beyond coal, which is the, of course the the slogan that the Sierra Club is being is using and Michael Bloomberg is spending 500 million dollars 
on the Beyond Carbon campaign to shut down every coal plant in America. Okay, you can do that, but it doesn't mean you've stopped coal. Yeah. Just, just to, again, put these numbers in perspective, um, a, f- a figure I've heard, uh, this is from uh, my friend Nate Hagens. Uh, we have a metabolism at any given time. We're consuming about 19 terawatts of, of energy. Um, I know that's uh, going to be a bit tricky to, to make comparisons to capacity, but you're basically saying China has a terawatt of coal. India has a terawatt of coal installed. Uh, the U.S., you know, has 200 gigawatts. So just I think that gives you a sense of just how enormous these fleets are. And it, just in terms of primary energy, in terms of the fossil component, you know, rough numbers here. Oil's a bit le- a bit more than a third. At gas, a little less than a third. Coal, a bit more than a third. But those are your, I call them sort of the holy trinity or unholy trinity of fossil fuels. I will say the liquid hydrocarbons are are the uh, the whatever the the superior one or the most important one, the most mission critical one. Um, but I think that yeah. does give you a sense of just how, how massive the global coal fleet is. And you are saying there's some, um, some retirements happening in the West, although Germany is doing some reactivations, uh, we see, and, and there was a big return to coal in Europe. Maybe you want to chat about, but, um, overall more coal than ever. Overall more coal than ever, despite all of this discussion about what is, you know, what is going on and, um, uh, and, and, you know, to your point, there's about 500, you know, ter- the latest numbers from the statistical review globally in terms of hydrocarbon use. If you can think about that, it's 500 exajoules per year of use and oil's about 190 exajoules, coal's about 160 and gas is about 140. So coal and gas together, about 300, oil's about 200 roughly in, in rough terms. So, you know, these are very large numbers. And one of the things that I've been working on since the COP meeting ended is making another graphic, another few graphics, because one of the things that I I view as my job and one of the things that I, you know, if I've had some success in my career, a lot of it is due to the fact that I'm, I'm giving people comparisons, right? To make, put one number next to another that allows them to put things in perspective, right? One of the best pieces of advice I ever got in my career was from Edward Tufte, so when you give people a number, give them something to compare it to, right? Something, a metric that they know that they can then react to, right? That they, you know, like, okay, so 12 exajoules is a current global uh, solar consumption globally, 12 exajoules. Well, so by itself, oil alone is 16 times as large as global solar, 16x. And remember, we can't use solar to drive our diesel trucks or to run our ships or our airplanes. So these ideas are, well, we'll triple inter- renewable energy capacity. Okay, well, that fine. That's great. It doesn't mean you're going to displace any coal. You might, maybe you'll displace some coal, maybe, but you won't displace any oil, right? But we have to begin, be very clear-eyed and very sober about what it, what is the rhetoric versus the reality. And that's where I see you know, my job and what I try to do is let's talk about reality because energy realism, this is my line. I'm going to use it over and over. Energy realism is energy humanism and we need more of both. Yeah. Yeah. Again, these sort of big picture analyses and why COP is, is destined to fail and why we are married to fossil I don't say that with any joy. I mean, I, I'm, uh, I think there's some twin challenges here. Uh, climate change is going to increase and, and become a, the bigger challenge potentially. Um, and then we have an energy, an energy challenge. Um, and that will be, um, the depletion, I think, particularly of, of the liquid hydrocarbons. Um, but that aside, I mean, a, a term and a figure that I've, I found useful just for this kind of, um, you know, 30,000 foot view on energy. And again, why we're not making progress. A barrel of oil contains uh, 1,700 kilowatt hours of, of uh, energy. 
a human can perform 0.6 kilowatt hours uh, over the course of a day. Rough calculations, <laughs> yeah. efficiencies taken into uh, into context. Again, I'm quoting uh, Hagen's and some others here, but we're talking about 400 billion uh, human slaves worth of energy that are propping up right. a population of 8 billion, probably two, 3 billion of those aren't working because their kids are aged, right? That is just an enormous amount of energy that's behind the human enterprises, behind the modern industrial enterprise. And the idea that you can just fire 400 billion laborers worth of energy and you know replace that with solar panels and wind turbines or nuclear that all require some of that labor, some of that fossil energy for things that are just too difficult to decarbonize. Um, or are not viable to decarbonize without the surpluses of energy. I mean, that's, that's, you know, it's a bit depressing, frankly, to sort of look at the world that way, but I would rather not be delusional. Um, and again, I maybe I have to reset my expectations. It doesn't mean I'm not advocating for nuclear anymore. I certainly am. Um, but it just, it just ties you into, you know, again, how, you know, the, the discovery of fire enabled homo sapiens with our small jaws and, uh, you know, short guts and big brains. The discovery of the use of hydrocarbons is what has led to homo industrialis, maybe I'll call it. Um, and the yeah. origin of that species is as tied to fossil fuels as ever. And, and I don't see a, a disentanglement there, despite, you know, some of the, the nuclear folks um, dreams about, you know, I mean, it's very Levi Louis Straussian energy too cheap to meter, but that we'll have, a, you know, endless cheap energy and, and that will make up for any any kind of diminishment in, in terms of fossil fuels, et cetera. I, I bit of a rant there, Robert, but um, just kind of had to get that off my chest. No, I, well, I'm, I'm remembering is the, the well, Homo sapiens. It's a wise man or knowledgeable man, right? If the the Latin, but a, a friend of mine, I forgot who it was. He said, actually, we're 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 man, the fire maker. Yeah, right? that the fire making was the thing that has really separated us from from every other living creature, right? And so you have the what was it, the Icarus parable, right, about fire, and you know that we, you know, we. Or no, it was who was the uh, who's the one who's tortured for uh, Prometheus giving yeah. it, Prometheus right yeah. chained you. to a rock, his liver pecked it, out every day. Right, eagle, I believe. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, Icarus flew too close to the sun. But you know, the other part of this that to me is so important, and it's one of the things that I focus on, and some of the work that I'm most proud of, and also the one the part of the work that I do that I think is the most meaningful, is the renewable rejection database. Right. So you have this this bias and i you know what and the thing that i've been a theme that i've been meaning to write about but i'll summarize it in very it's very easy to say it's, i've been trying to think about how i write it but the tradition of environmentalism the tradition of environmental protection of conservation of conservationism of preserving landscapes and wildlife and whales and birds it's been completely supplanted completely replaced by climatism and renewable energy fetishism in the, and Steve Brick talks about this from Clean Air Task Force, that, that somehow renewables are the end in themselves. And you see that in this stock take from, from uh, Dubai, tripling renewable energy capacity by 2030. Well, that's an impossible goal. It will not happen. It's just like, it is so fanciful. That's six years from now. And the, and the, and the point is that I'm getting to here is, well, they say this because the idea of renewable energy is so... It's catnip, right? It's just politically palatable. Everybody just loves this idea of, re, you know, because of that branding, renewable. Oh, well, then it's clean. It's green. No, it's not. It's the opposite. And it, the, 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 and it requires so much destruction of the environment that it's become this kind of credo, this own religion in, in itself. And that was the part that, to me, of the things that came out of the, 
COP28, you know, this is their headline number. This is their headline achievement. We're going to triple renewable capacity by in, in six years. Well, the hell you are. You, there's no way it can be done. Even if you have the land, you don't have the amount of transformers. You don't have the copper. You don't have the linemen. You don't have the electrician, the people who can actually do it. But I think this is part of this broader um, betrayal of environment, the environment and the concept of protection of environmental, uh, of sacred spaces in, in nature. And it's been all just sacrificed at the altar of climatism and, and renewable energy fetishism. Yeah. I mean, uh, apropos, you know, digging up landscapes, turning them inside out. Uh, I'm reading a great book right now, Ed Conway, Material World, fabulous journalist, fabulous oh, right, book. Yeah. I want to, I want to get that book. I, I, I want to yeah. have him on the podcast. Let me tell you, he's hard to get on the podcast. I've been chasing his publicist around for over a month, pestering her every other day with emails, <laughs> but I will, I will, I promise. He's with Sky, he's with Sky News, right? Yes. Isn't that where he's, yeah, yeah, right. Anyway, one of the things he talks about uh, is copper and, you know, sort of paleolithically or prehistorically, or I guess in the copper age before the bronze age, you could literally just find bits of pure copper lying around and, you know, hit them with a rock and turn them into something. And then, you know, we got into pretty damn good ore grades of around, I think 20% up in Cornwall, England. And then by the, you know, 1900s, early 1900s were down to 6%. By the, you know, year 2000, I think we're down to about two or 1%. Now we're sort of 0.6%. Uh, the amount of overburden we need to remove, the amount of energy required to blast and, and you know, massive 400 ton trucks, um, the, uh, the milling, grinding these particles even finer to try and extract that metal. I mean, what I love about this book is it's just rubbing your face in the supply chain. Um, and, you know, what you're seeing and, you know, and there's this agenda, uh, there's, there's this uh, idea of sort of super abundance on one side and sort of Malthusian limits on the other. And on the superabundance front, it's this narrative of, you know, humans are endlessly ingenious. We solve problems. We're not like bacteria in a Petri dish. We've got technology. And that is all very true. Uh, but it's ignoring this, this underlying reality of energy powering all of that. You know, there's a strange coincidence of the last 250 years that we went from, you know, horse-drawn wagons to uh, space travel to, to the moon. And underpinning that may have, may have been a little bit of energy. Uh, but anyway, just, it just goes yeah. to show... Um, you know, more and more energy and high quality, low entropy forms of energy are being required to crush this, this low ore grade rock right. to pull up more copper. Yes, it's never been cheaper, essentially, in terms of the equivalent of sort of worked hours to get that copper, but it all is dependent on energy. So if you want to retire those 500 billion, you know, slave labor uh, <laughs> worth of fossil energy, you ain't getting the copper out of the rocks to build, you know, a, uh, a an energy infrastructure, stochastic, high entropy, shitty, uh, intermittent electricity only essentially um it's just it's a whole house of cards and when you can sort of step back and, and look at the world through the eyes of folks like ed conway or uh Hagen's or smill or others uh you know I, i'm just i'm just you know feeling a lot of kind of sobriety looking at the whole picture and finally sort of coming to a more fulsome understanding of why no progress gets made at these cops we're married we're married we're, we're married and we can't divorce them you know well fossil fuels can't live with yeah. them can't live without them i don't know <laughs> I'm, I'm married to the same woman proudly for 37 years, but there's some, there's some uh, divorce joke in here, right? About, well, my first wife, right? Or something, you know, <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield should step in here, right? But this idea, oh, oh well, we're just going to quit using hydrocarbons and these just stop oil spoiled brat idiots. I just, I look at them. I just want them. I want to lock them under the jail. Better yet, I want to send them to rural 
Zambia, and you are not allowed to use any hydrocarbons of any form for five years, and then you report back and tell us how wow. you like it. Wow. You know, because I just think it is this this nature of these spoiled kids who don't know how good they have it and they just want to perform this kind of public kind of anxiety play. And uh, But back to the point about metals and, and the issues of the energy transition, I think this is one of the most interesting things that uh, that I think about now in terms because I don't quite know what to think about it. I've had Simon Michaud on the, on the Power Hungry podcast from the Finnish Geological Survey, and he is on the same t- track on terms of declining ore qualities and what is going to be required as we, you know, use these lower quality ores where we have to process them more. Well, that means you need more bulldozers. You need more front end loaders. You need more cranes, more, more shovels, all the stuff that's going to burn hydrocarbons in order to make the crap that you're supposedly going to use to quit using hydrocarbons. Well, okay, well, how much tail chasing are we going to do here? And the part that is confusing is, is, so I'm just looking at the copper price chart, right? Because everyone's saying, well, copper prices are going to go up. Well, they've actually been flat, really. They're, it's, it's $3.90 a pound now. It's below what it was in early 2022 of uh, nearly $5. But on a long-term basis, it's really about the same as it's been for the last uh, three years. Now, will it go up? Well, maybe. I, you know, who knows anything anymore? This is the part where I'm just, everything in the world seems confusing to me today. I mean, I guarantee you, price of energy goes up significantly, or we stop using you stop using fossil fuels, and the price of uh, copper will will skyrocket. It used to take forty years to produce a ton of copper uh, pre-fossil, and then I think we got into you know a year or something. Now we're down to you know it takes the equivalent of you know four days of labor, maybe even less, to get a ton of copper. But you know, uh, there was that bet between Paul Ehrlich and Julian Simons, one of the most famous bets in the oh, world, yeah. right? About you know number of yeah. commodities and whether they'd get more expensive or less, and uh, you know, if they picked a different time frame, some of them would have been more expensive in dollar value, but not in terms of you know the amount of hours of human labor required um, to right. uh, to pay for that cost, which is I think a lot of people or, argue or more. In ounces or in ounces of gold equivalent, right? But, but and so here, here's a know, really interesting historical uh, yeah. analogy, right? So as the ore grades go down, some of these Chilean copper mines start becoming unviable, and I think it was the Carnegies, the Panama Canal. They'd finished digging the Panama Canal. And they moved those massive steam shovels down to the Atacama or the, wherever those copper mines are. And so they started applying, you know, incredible amounts of fossil energy in these massive machines. And that's what, you know, unleashed an incredible amount of wealth from even lower ore grades. So there you have that perfect example of, you know, what has enabled um, Ehrlich's bet to be broken by Julian Simons is, you know, the application of ever-increasing amounts of, of fossil energy. So I don't know. I, I, I This book well, by Ed it's, Conway, it's, it's, it's a must-read. We're going to have him on soon, but... Yeah, no, I, I, I'd look forward to hearing that because I've been I've known about that book. It was only recently published in the U.S. Yeah. It was published in Europe six or eight months ago. Um, but just one quick... Here's the other counterfactual, right, to what you're just saying, because I don't disagree, but it's one of the things in my own head as I try and work through these things. Well, okay... Who's right? On a, on a, on a, if you think about, well, our, the quality of our oil and gas reservoirs is declining, therefore the price should go up. Well, yes, except the price of oil today is roughly the same as it was when I was in grade school on a constant dollar basis. The price of electricity has gone down on a constant dollar basis. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine, Chris Wright, who's the CEO of Liberty Energy. They're one of the biggest hydraulic fracturing companies in the world. They, they frack about one of every five wells in the United States. And he pointed out that in the in the Haynesville shale in Louisiana, they they you know that what was tier two acreage right the acreage it wasn't quite so good as the what they had before they thought well we're going to get lower production 
Well, instead, they change their recipe on how much sand they put per foot of the hydro of the horizontal lateral, and what was was thought to be tier two acreage is producing as much as what used to be tier one acreage. So, I'm not saying this goes on forever, but it's the constant battle and the constant interplay between manpower, money, and technology, right? And we're getting better at using less and less manpower, man labor and less at capital and better because we're utilizing more technology. And this is the story of the shale revolution, which has fundamentally changed the U.S., uh, the fortunes of the U.S. energy economy. And thankfully, I mean, the amount of money that has been saved by U.S. consumers because of this confluence of private property rights, capital, technology, and and drilling prowess. I mean, it's just, and 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 and, and private ownership of mineral rights, maybe the, the most important, but all of those things together have just been, had an incredible effect on the U.S. economy, and and we're really the envy of the rest of the world, and and for the reason we continue to have low cost energy. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, but you are committing that that um, that sin of uh, classical and neoclassical economics of talking capital, labor, and technology, but but uh, leaving energy out of the uh, the equation. Right? It's been cheap, abundant. You don't even need to factor it in. It's substitutable. It's just any other input. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, you know, as the copper example illustrates, or even, I guess, as fracking illustrates, there's a bunch of energy you got to put in. There's, there's, I mean, that's why micro reactors no, no, are kind of no, the talk no of the town it. in and, terms and of powering frack rigs and stuff. Yeah. Right. And so, and, and, and I take, you know, this is Nate Hagen's kind of overview, right? With that energy is not just any other commodity. And I totally agree with that. I, but my point is not to deny that, but rather that, our application of technology and energy in the technology allows us to use more energy. So the more energy, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the weird part in the, 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 the very odd fact about the energy business is the more we find, the more we find, the more oil and gas we find, the more oil and gas we find It's truly incredible. And I'm, I'm not standing here to be a cheerleader for the industry. I'm just observable yeah. facts yeah. show that over time, despite the, the reality that we have recovered massive amounts of reserves, the amount of oil reserves in the glo- globally continue to rise. So it's um, it's just a, it's such an amazing industry. The you know energy and power both. I mean, I, I that's why I consider myself so fortunate. I get to study this stuff, talk about it, and just puzzle through it all the time because I just find it endlessly fascinating. Well, I think we're both uh, fascinated and frustrated, probably in equal parts, with the uh, potential. Pissed and- off. <laughs> yeah, of, of, of nuclear to do something similar. I mean, there's so many incredibly talented and smart people in the sector. But um, I have to say, um, you know, even in Ontario, where we have so many of the right preconditions, we've got, you know, the, you know, thankfully, we've turned the federal government around. They were adamantly anti-nuclear. They're, they're you know, the most bullishly pro-nuclear government I can sort of list right now. And certainly in terms of their policy list, uh, you know, provincial government on board, municipalities on board, social license incredibly capable institutions like Ontario Power Generation and Bruce Power, a hot supply chain, and even there looking at the ISO predictions for nuclear deployment. I mean, we're, we're, uh, looks like we're going to be refurbishing um, about two thirds of the Pickering plant. We're losing a third of it. Um, we're going to replace that third just with those four SMRs at Darlington. So we haven't made any progress. And then we're going to add, you know, new, uh, big nuclear at Bruce, God willing, doesn't come online until the, uh, the mid to late 2040s. So this idea that, so that the, we've so got so limitless feedback, clean, what you're saying is that, you know, that despite what Canada is doing and, and really leading the world, you're, 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 you're treading water really. Not true. I mean, there will be additions, um, you know, we'll, we'll net out at 4,800 megawatts after losing that bit of Pickering and replacing it with the, uh, four SMRs we'll net out at positive 400, 4,800, uh, megawatts. Uh, but again, that doesn't happen until the 2040s and that's with, you know, 
a lot of the preconditions there. You know, if let's say we had uh, the U.S. was Russia at our border and we had more of an imperative, I think we could go a bit faster. But uh, this idea that we can just bring, you know, limitless clean nuclear energy online with a snap of a finger. I'm sorry. You know, that's I see that a lot in, in this community um, and it won't make me popular. But, you know, we got to have a reality check. And if we approach this with anything but absolute um, humility, particularly in the West, about about how to do this and without without a strong desire to learn and, and study what worked in the past, what's working currently. That's that's where I see things falling flat on their face, particularly in the U.S. Um, you know, the the discourse to there me that, is, right, that comes back to it comes back to the fuel thing. I mean, I just, you know, I, I, I asked I interviewed Bill Magwood right from the um, uh, he's at uh, oh, now I'm forgetting his title, um, but he's in Paris. Right. And he's international. He's an American guy. Right. But he's. Um, I asked him, well, which is the most important thing? What do we have to tackle first? Is it the regulation? Is it the, is it the capital? Is it the fuel? He said, no, you have to do them all. But okay. So I, I'll take that point. But to me, as I think about it, I think it's, it's, it, the fuel part is the, the one that seems the stickiest to me. Um, and that, uh, Magwood is the director general of the nuclear energy agency. That's part of the OECD. Um, I just looked it up, but it, to me, and you, you pointed this out that Centris. Yeah, they're, they've started producing Halu at their at their new facility in Ohio, but it's 900 kilograms. And you said it's enough for one five megawatt reactor. Well, we don't need megawatts. We need terawatts. Well, the industry is promising, you know, uh, and really over promising uh, that SMRs and micro reactors are going to be this panacea. The sea change are going to be cheap. They're going to roll off assembly lines. You know, they haven't even talked about having the fuel for them, but like we are going to be facing some real reality and frankly disappointment compared to where expectations have been set. And I, I think that's a huge error, you know, fuel. Absolutely. It's interesting. I think every country in the world has different difficulties with nuclear, some far less and some far more, uh, the USA and the EU, um, about just, uh, under a quarter of their enrichment services are Russian. Um, and there's legislation in the U S right now to, to ban not just uranium, but, uh, the, the enriched, uh, fuel as well. Um, Russia has just uh, said today that they may uh, preempt that and decide uh, at their choosing when when uh, there's no longer any enrichment services going to the U.S. Um, but you know, it's interesting. I ran into a few Japanese uh, nuclear folks at COP, uh, and they said their number one constraint is human resources. And if you think about that, the, the demography of of uh, Japan, where the replacement rate you know for kids is like 1.1 or 1.2 for a couple. Um, you think about that nuclear industry being shut down for 10, 15 years. Uh, and you think about young people. Okay, is this a sector I want to go into? Do I want to study nuclear engineering um, if this industry has been shut down and dead? So they that is their absolute crunch. So it's it's you know, it's patterned differently all over the world. Uh, in the US, I'd say the challenge is really, you know, well, they got all the challenges, honestly. HR fuel, uh, you know, competent institutions. Um, and again, this kind of uh ecosystem between uh government industry, et cetera. It's just so complex and there's so many divergent interests. Um, you know, it's interesting on that fuel cycle panel, uh, when talking about this, this, uh, fuel pinch in terms of Russia, you have the Arenko guy, uh, Boris Schutz saying, no problem. We'll just overfeed the machines. Um, you've got the centrist guy and centrist is most of their uranium is, you know, they're brokering Russian fuel sales saying, no, we got to get moved past Russia. And I think centrist wants to add some more enrichment capacity. Arenko is happy to, to sell into a tight market. It's, Kind of like, a, I guess, a bit of an OPEC situation. So you have all these um, divergent interests, you know, and God bless them. It's to fiduciary interest to, to their shareholders. 
But that's not in the national interest. That's not in the interest of deploying nuclear. That's not in the interest, the strategic interest of, you know, treading water, let alone keeping up with, with Russia and China. So there's, there's so much, um, so much going on there. And again, I think, yeah, the, the biggest issue in the West is, uh, and I, I lack the vocabulary, maybe, maybe in your conversation with you or further conversations, we'll figure out how to, how to describe that dysfunctional ecosystem of, again, divergent interests that are not aligning in the way that a vertical oriented, uh, you know, company or utility might, or a state might. And I think that brings us back to that, that theme, right? Well, yeah. And so I'll add one other layer of the complexity. And I think that's a good point about Japan and the labor part of this, right? Because that is something I hear about a lot. I travel a lot in the US. And so since I, I was in London in early last month, and since then, I've been in Little Rock, Kearney, Nebraska, and Des Moines, Iowa. And in all of those stops, what do I hear about? Labor shortages, right? That they don't have enough people. They're in, in Arkansas, there's something like two open jobs for every available worker. You know, they, 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 I talked to one guy who's a, in manufacturing. He said, we could hire 50 millwrights right now if I could find them. He said, I just can't get people who, one, who, are, have, who have skill don't, and who are blue collar and know how to use a tape measure and weld, right? You know, that they, you know, this, these basic skills of the things, the people that make things are lacking, right? And, and those are the people I hope to represent, or I, 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 I want to speak for to this extent that I can. People who grow things, make things, build things, right? You know, those are the ones that I'm all for them because they are overlooked and yet there aren't enough of those people. But I think this, you know, that, so the labor, the capital, the fuel, um, and the regulation all come together, right? But it's, as you say, we didn't, you know, this, all these supply chain issues, these, these things, these factors all come together, but further, it's about this ability to bring them all together at once in order to build this new capacity. And the other thing that I think is critical to remember about the United States, people, you know, in, in Canada, you have, I don't, I, I don't know how many new uh, electricity suppliers. It's only a handful, I believe. In Japan, there are 10. In the United States, we have 3,300. We have, you have almost 900 cooperatives, 2,000 public power entities like Austin Energy, where I live, the city-owned utility. You have 180 some investor-owned utilities, and then you have the public, uh, the federally-owned entities like Tennessee Valley Authority and Bonneville Power. So it's over 3,000 different entities that, in some, in one form or another, are delivering juice to the ultimate customer. That's and and oh, and I haven't even mentioned the the independent power producers. You know, the Calpines and the NRGs and the others that that are you know in 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 the business, but they aren't even in that segment of that I just mentioned. So. It's just an incredibly complex system that we have here in the U.S. And to get them all singing from the same hymnal on anything is hard. Well, Robert, I think that's probably uh, where we'll leave it. Um, fascinating. <laughs> we've had enough. We've had enough fun. Oh God! Depression I mean, I for could, the we moment. Could go on for, we could go on for hours. I, I'd committed to three recordings today. I had to dial back so we can get to a Christmas party with the fiance. Um, you know, happy wife, happy life. Um, so, uh, it always a pleasure, man. And I really, I really did enjoy the conversational format here. Um, it's, it's just uh, great having you as a friend, uh, as a mentor. Um, so thank you for making time to come back on decouple and, um, Oh, always, always, always a pleasure flattered to do it. And, uh, you know, this is what I'm about and fiance, look at you, you know, who knew, you know, an ugly mug, like you could get a woman interested in. It's amazing, but that's a beautiful thing. Congratulations. Oh, shucks. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate ah. it. <laughs> Shucks, that's nice. <laughs> Seriously, congratulations. That's great. I'm pro-marriage, Chris. That's it's a beautiful thing. Congratulations, my friend. Thank you, sir. All right.
Be well, Robert. We'll talk very soon, I'm sure. Thanks, y'all.